0: Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm Jordan Schneider here today with Matt Sheehan. He is a fellow at the Paulson Institute the creator of the China Fornia newsletter and uh, an author of the upcoming book of the same name, uh, Matt. Welcome to the uh, welcome to the podcast. So before we jump into uh, China Fornia and some recent pieces you've written on the interaction between the Golden State and the Middle Kingdom, I'm curious how you first got into China. What what first got you hooked and 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 kept you in the country?
1: I first went over pretty much by chance in 2000, summer of 2008 which is between my sophomore and junior years in college. I had wanted to go somewhere in Asia that summer and I ended up getting a job as a, a academic camp counselor, sort of like a TA at an academic summer camp in Beijing. And that was my first time in China, my first time in Asia, my first time in a country like that's sufficiently different from the US. I'd been to I'd been to Mexico and to Europe. But China just kind of blew me away from the from the very beginning, from landing there. So I spent a summer there uh, in Beijing, traveled a little bit to Xi'an and to Shanghai and just had a blast and knew instantly that I needed to move back there after graduating. So uh, I graduated college in 2010. I took like two quarters of Mandarin before I finished and got a teaching job in Xi'an. So I moved back there in 2010, was in Xi'an for a year and then made my way to Beijing and kind of went through the the somewhat standard, you know, teach English, study Chinese, find a job, find a better job, eventually find a job that you're, you know, happy with. And uh, how do you think your,
0: your experience uh, changed over time over those years?
1: Hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, the the deeper that you get into the language and the culture, and sort of the, the friend networks that you're able to build up there, it, you know, your experience kind of gets richer as you go. So by the end of my time there in 2006, the beginning of 2016, I you know, I really I really felt very, very much at home. I had good friends all over the country, had a job that I really liked working as the correspondent for the Huffington Post. And, you know, it was really comfortable and that was great. Um but i also looking back i i really value i really treasure my first year there in xian you know i was very going into it very fresh and I the feeling of walking around a city like that even when you you know barely understand what's going on around you you barely understand what people are saying but it just feels like every day is such a discovery and so much food for thought and i i really think that was one of the most special years in my life so um you know the, the, the whole journey's exciting, and I like the the comfort and the fluency at the end, but I really like that early state of discovery too. Sure. So uh,
0: what brought you to the uh, the idea of working uh, in between California and uh, and China? What, uh, what, what drew you to the uh, the themes inherent in this uh, in this story?
1: Yeah, so I, I grew up mostly in the Bay Area. I grew up in Palo Alto and went to school at Stanford. So I had a lot of you know uh, California connections behind me. And I started going more back and forth between the two places in 2013. Um, That's when I actually uh, broke my ankle in Beijing. The Beijing doctor who looked at my x-ray for about two seconds just looked at me like, Mei, sure. And, you know, no problem. And he uh, (laughs) kind of dismissed me while I had this, you know, watermelon-sized ankle. When I flew back to California, the doctors told me that it was, you know, very bad. I should not have flown because it's dangerous to fly with a broken leg. Um, and I ended up having to stay in California for a couple months. So at that time was really when you were starting to see the ramp up in foreign real estate purchases and EB five, stuff like that. So I did, uh, I think two stories at that time, one on students, um, going back and forth between the places and one on, uh, Chinese real estate purchases in Palo Alto where I grew up. So I sort of got a taste of it then. And very soon after that is when I got my job with the Huffington Post and that, was a job back in China, but the visa process was a was a hot mess. So I spent about seven or eight months waiting for my visa in California, and during that time, really saw how vibrant and like multidimensional the relationship was. So I could see a lot of Chinese uh, tech people, tech investors, and coders, and you know just recent graduates in Silicon Valley, the real estate purchases, the students going back and forth. Um, some of the early China Hollywood interactions. I just thought this was uh, r- like a really exciting window into what I, one possible future for the US China relationship. But the one that's kind of more productive, um, more face to face, more of an actual like exchange of ideas and culture and stuff like that, along with all the money. And uh, so I got pretty excited about that. And there was also a, a girl in the mix, um, my now girlfriend, who I met and uh, got together with during that time. And uh, I made some promises about coming back to California that I had to fulfill or that I chose to fulfill because I wanted to come home and be with her. So I moved back in 2016 and, and took up the, the Chinafornia mantle full time. Sure.
0: Um, so diving a little deeper into this, could you give us a little bit uh, more of the perspective
1: you learned about the relationship? Sure. Um, so Historical historical perspective, excuse historical me. Historical perspective. So, the yeah, that's one of the... Coolest and most interesting things about looking at um, Chinafornia here, about the fact that so much of this activity in the present day is going down here in San Francisco and L.A. These are two of the places that were also the birthplace of sort of face to face U.S.-China relations with the early waves of immigrants coming here, um, the project of building the railroad the a lot of the anti-chinese sentiment that went on in the 1880s and 90s leading to the Chinese exclusion act so you have really deep roots that also turned into you know long-lasting communities here and we're, we it really feels like we're coming full circle in the present day um, because back then the chinese immigrants that were coming were often you know very low social status in their home country sort of desperately leaving ending up here being very low social status in the united states and you know get in the uh, kind of beat up on by by the predominantly white establishment and you know you fast forward what 130 years 140 years or so and suddenly when the next time you have a very large immigration wave not from hong kong and taiwan in the 70s and 80s but in the present day from the mainland and the the social status has completely flipped around the relative wealth of the people that are showing up relative to the people that are already here has been completely flipped around Um, nowadays Many of the Chinese immigrants, not all of them, but many of the immigrants and students and investors, they're, uh, you know, they're they're very wealthy. They're purchasing, you know, million dollar homes by the dozen or they're paying full tuition at California universities or buying up startups or funding Hollywood films. And so to watch that uh, complete reversal in relative wealth and status between the two sides is really interesting because you can also see some of the backlash or the, you know, feelings of uh, uh, people who are not happy about necessarily like the home purchases, it's a it's kind of a weird mirror image reflection of what was going on in back in the day. I wouldn't I wouldn't equate any you know local backlash in the present day with the Chinese Exclusion Act. But you see some similar um, rhetoric around back in the day. It was, you know, low wage uh, Irish laborers like my great great granddad who were angry because the Chinese were, quote, you know, taking their jobs, driving down their wages and the present day. Uh, if you look around or keep your ear to the street, there's a lot of rhetoric about the Chinese who are driving up housing prices and, you know, uh, filling up the neighborhood with uh, empty houses and stuff like that. So it's a it's a weird uh, it's a weird twist and come in full circle with the history.
0: So you sort of uh, got to this, but are there any other central contradictions of the
1: uh, China uh, California relationship today? Central contradictions in the uh, in the communist orthodox Marxist orthodoxy sense. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) I think you have a lot of tensions, at the very least, Uh, in the from the Chinese, say the Chinese government side. You have tensions around what they want and what they're getting. Um, The Chinese government, when it looks to California, one of the reasons that the relationship is so rich between Hollywood and China and Silicon Valley and China, is because these two these places have a lot of what the chinese government sees in its future the chinese government wants to transition away from this you know sort of low value add industrial manufacturing export economy to a high value add service based innovation based uh, culture and consumption based economy and it just so happens that the two meccas of these things of culture global sort of popular culture and global innovation are right here in california so the government certainly wants a piece of that but they also don't necessarily want the cultural ideological underpinnings of that. They don't want the freedom of expression that comes that a lot of people would say is, is pretty central to Hollywood. They don't want the uh, disruptive in a uh, cultural political sense uh, aspect of Silicon Valley. And so from, that's a bit of the government's tension there. They want they want to take the stuff, but they also want it to be grown in China with Chinese characteristics. They want to buy what they can buy and they want to take it home and learn how to do it themselves. Um, from California's perspective, something that you see a lot at like universities around here, or with tech companies or neighborhoods, uh, I think it's almost it's most clear with universities. They want the Chinese tuition dollars, but they don't necessarily want their schools to become you know kind of uh, a hideout or a, dominated by wealthy Chinese students. A lot of the parents are concerned that it's gonna that we're essentially auctioning seats in the UC system or admittance to the UC system, auctioning it to the highest bidder. Um, but if we're not willing to fund our schools ourselves, then this is kind of what we're left with. So I see tensions on, on both sides of that, what the Chinese government or its companies are wanting and getting, and also California's desire for those investment dollars and tuition dollars, but sort of uh, being a little bit leery about the the cultural you know, results of that. Sure. So uh, coming down a little more to the people
0: to people level, you um, are also a tour guide for Chinese tourists. One of my um, favorite pieces of relatively recent journalism was Evan Osnos uh, jumping on a Chinese tour bus and driving around Europe. Um, and I'm curious kind of how, um, you know, what the folks are interested in, what questions and observations they've had that have surprised you um, and kind of how they react to just
1: San Francisco as a city. Yeah, so most of the tours that I've done have either been around Stanford, Silicon Valley, or further north, like in wine country, Napa up there. So, uh, you know, I love showing them around Stanford. I grew up around there. I went to school there, and I really, I just love that campus. I think it's an incredible, uh, an incredible place to explore. So I have a lot of fun with it. I take them around depending on who it is. Um, You know, if it's parents and kids, I might play Frisbee with them. If it's more of a corporate delegation we might make the rounds at the various uh, technology campuses and stuff like that. Um, in terms of what they are looking for and what I'm trying to share with them, what I'm always trying to do when I introduce California or Silicon Valley to Chinese people is I'm trying to really give them a sense that there's uh, of the cultural underpinnings of things that they know or like or think are great. I think. Chinese culture or Chinese people, they have a tendency to be very into sort of rank orderings and what is number one, what is officially the number one school and officially the number one tech company. There's kind of a, a tendency to lean towards those rankings. And so people are like, oh, Stanford, mm, you know, officially, this is officially a great school. And what I always want to try to say is, well, yeah, I do think it's a great school, but the reasons are it's not because like US News and World Report ranked it X, Y, or Z or because it has like whatever number of Nobel Prize winners. It's all that stuff grew out of a grassroots, ground-up, like, cultural environment. And so that's what I'm always trying to share with them. Um, and it can be a little bit hard to, to communicate that sometimes or to get people outside of that box of thinking that everything uh, is kind of a top-down ranking. One of the more interesting things is also trying to relay to them how unstructured and sort of culture-based certain institutions are, like the idea of Silicon Valley. A lot of people are, when, when they came here, <laughs> or when they come here, they ask me, like, where, you know, where is, we're, we're on, you know, Stanford campus, we're in college, like, where is Silicon Valley? And like, we're in Silicon Valley right now. Like, Silicon Valley is an idea. Silicon Valley is sort of a, a general area. It's an idea layered over a general area, but it's not like a county or a city or something like that. And I heard a similar anecdote from a friend of mine who works with Chinese people in um, in film. Or in, I think it was in 2008, he was talking to the deputy minister of culture in Beijing. And the deputy minister of culture went up to him and said, you know, I want you to tell me, who is the CEO of Hollywood? <laughs> like, There is no CEO of Hollywood. You know, Hollywood is not a company. Hollywood is not you can't, it's a city, I guess, on a map, but really it's, it's kind of a cultural institution. It's a set of ideas and the way people relate to each other in a business ecosystem. And so trying to relay those things to people can be, um, a little bit challenging, but, but fun. It's, it's what I think is valuable in this stuff. Sure. I remember, um, driving down Sand Hill road
0: for the first time and thinking like, this is it. These are just office parks with like Fancy names of places I've heard on them. Um, uh, but, uh, getting, getting, uh, getting people from another country to process that must be, uh, must be a real challenge. So, um, transitioning into uh, your recent piece on the Silicon Valley paradox, um, which sort of, uh, uh, bleeds over from, from, from your recent comments about the kind of cultural differences between the, the, the two tech ecosystems and, in, in, uh, in, uh, particularly in Beijing and, and, uh, the and, and Silicon Valley. Um, if you could, uh, kind of walk us through what you think each side's blind spots are about the uh, the the city across the Pacific.
1: Sure, yeah. A piece called Silicon Valley's China Paradox and it's just trying to pick apart what I see as the, I guess you'd call it the central contradiction of the current tech relationship, which is that we're seeing really high flows of people, talent, or people, money and ideas, talent, money and ideas between the two places, but the Companies and sort of the Internet itself still remains very much divided by national boundaries. You know, you have um, like grassroots or grassroots, you know, sort of low level coders that'll be trained in China, go to grad school in the US, work at Google and then go back to China or some of the reverse. You have some sort of leading people from Silicon Valley who have spent time at uh, Chinese tech companies, Andrew Ng and um, Hugo Barra and people like that. So you have a lot of flows that way. You have a lot of flows of money, whether that's Chinese sort of seed investment and or big companies like Tencent buying up pieces of Tesla and buying up pieces of Snapchat and the same going back the other way. And and also ideas, this cultural sharing, the way that Chinese people look to Silicon Valley as kind of a model of what a tech company should be, of what uh, innovation culture should be. And even some companies like Facebook trying to take a page out of WeChat's book in uh, the way that they build up their own app and try to integrate payments. So you have all this exchange on those levels, but somehow the companies just cannot seem to enter each other's markets on the U S side, going to China largely because of the firewall, but also because they have a hard time localizing the way Airbnb and Uber um, have dealt with and on the Chinese side, they, they just can't seem to craft the U S market. So that's what I see as kind of the paradox or the, the tension between those two sides in terms of blind spots. Uh, it's I've summed it up in in a way that uh, I think captures at least some of the weaknesses on both sides. It's Silicon Valley's egocentrism versus Chinese companies, tech companies' ethnocentrism. This is an idea that sort of emerged out of a conversation with a friend who's worked um, at a you know a relatively high level in leading Chinese tech companies and U.S. tech companies. And when he was he, he's a you know a white American. And when he was over in China, he was doing good work and working for an elite company. But you notice there, there is a certain level of ethnocentrism in that China has a very hard time absorbing, truly absorbing people from other cultures. Um, but they're actually very good at absorbing ideas from other cultures. China's they're always looking to Silicon Valley for the latest and the greatest. They have no sort of uh, They don't they're very willing to learn from other places, especially Silicon Valley, but also maybe some other countries like India or Southeast Asia. So China, that's their problem. Ethnocentrism. They can't absorb the people, but they can absorb the ideas. Silicon Valley. It's kind of the opposite. We're over here. We're very good at bringing people in from all over the world um, to work in these companies to get a U.S. education, you know, letting them into at least uh, in the past, you know, giving them a green card if they can sort of demonstrate sufficient talent and all that. Um, So we're very good at absorbing those people, but we're not so good at uh, absorbing ideas from other places necessarily. In Silicon Valley, there can be a real egocentrism around not thinking that there's nothing to learn from China, thinking there's nothing to learn from Chinese companies or Indian companies. We assume that if uh, our companies don't succeed there, uh, that's probably because of either government protection or because you know, some weird quirky thing about the local market, but we know that we aren't truly inventing the future here. And this is kind of the center of all meaningful innovation. So those are the sort of the corresponding strengths in the blind spots, absorbing people, but not ideas here in Silicon Valley and absorbing ideas, but not people in, uh, in China. Sure.
0: Uh, so I don't know if you have any experience with, uh, Wang Zirongyao, Um, The King's Glory, it's basically like a League of Legends clone on your phone. It uh, was set to launch in the U.S. in November. I think they just pushed it back to the new year, but um, this is my pick for the uh first chinese app i guess aside from musically that's going to absolutely blow up in the u.s it is uh uh leaps and bounds above any other um cell phone game out there and um, i'm looking forward to seeing a if people realize it's a chinese game and b um just how big it gets um because of the level of dominance it's uh established in the uh in the chinese market is pretty pretty remarkable
1: yeah i'm not i'm not a gamer but i've heard plenty about that and uh it's actually just recently it's been cool to hear some friends who have nothing to do with China coming to me with certain Chinese cultural artifacts and saying, wow, like, have you checked this out? It's super cool. So a friend who has nothing to do with China did that with the three body problem. Um, Another friend uh, who's like deep in, he, he, he makes beats. He's like deep in the hip hop beat making scene coming to me with like higher brothers rap music. And I was like, wow, this is like one of the first times that, uh, you know, American friends who have nothing to do with China are coming to me with Chinese cultural products and saying, you know, I love this. You know, I, I, I dig this stuff. It's, I always feel like in the past that, you know, I've, I love various Chinese cultural products, but it, you know, I want to love them. I'm kind of invested in, in that aspect of it. That's cool to see people just getting it. Uh, I don't know, get it, getting it without any presuppositions or without uh, trying to like Chinese cultural things. Sure. Um, I, I totally feel you. I think Chinese hip hop is, is,
0: was probably my first, like, uh, piece of Chinese culture. I just was able to like because I thought it was awesome, not because, you know, for some, like, instrumental reason of, like, oh, this will be good for my Chinese or what have you. So, um, Chinese hip hop then. Were you, <laughs> were you following, uh, Zhongguo Yoshiha?
1: Did you, uh... I caught, I caught sort of the end of it. I caught, uh, I think I got to China this, when was this? This was in September. In August, September, I got there like during the final few episodes. And I really, had, I had heard like rumblings of it, but I had not realized just how big it was. And um, I I was, at the time, I was uh, there for a research trip related to Chinese film. And I sort of got a little like backdoor intro into the hip hop scene in Beijing by, I ended up on the set of what's called a Dianying, like a, like a Wangda, a big internet movie, which is kind of like a, you know, a cheap internet movie that is put uh, online you can sort of like buy access to it for like five quay or something like that it's kind of the underground movie making scene in china but the one that i happened to get connected to was a it was called what, 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 what the Lao rapper? Like a kid with a stutter, a kid with a stutter saying, "My teacher is a rapper," and it was like a, a it was like a Chinese knockoff Eight Mile type movie um, about a kid, uh, a kid with a stutter, like losing his stutter by getting into rap, something like that. Um, and so I had a lot of fun. I got to hang out with the. Some like Beijing rappers and, and sort of assorted hangers on, but uh yeah, it wasn't until I got there that I realized just how like explosive and big that movie was as a or not that movie that TV show was as like a cultural you know impetus to getting people into hip hop.
0: It is really remarkable. So you were you were um, here when it was still much more of an underground thing. Could you talk a little bit about um. Hanging around in Chengdu, you wrote a piece a while ago about a Uber protest song. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. So I went, uh, I went to Chengdu. That would be the late summer of 2015. So it was kind of there. There had been a couple of hip hop songs that had achieved some degree of fame. The way, the first way that I got out there, there there were two rappers there that I wanted to visit. One was named Fat Shady, um, and he had. Mm, he was the the creator of maybe the first like viral Chinese hip hop song, which is called Lao Zi Ming Tian Bu Shang ban, like Daddy's not going to work tomorrow. And he was on an earlier um, he was on an earlier Chinese kind of talent show uh, where most of the people are singing their songs, but he was like the one rapper, and he raps in like Sichuan dialect. And that song went super viral because it just captures that like you know Gaos si the feeling of like I don't I hate my you know city job like I don't want to go to work. Um, so I went and I hung out with him and with Mello, Mello in tribute, Fat Shady in tribute to Slim Shady, Mello in, as a tribute to Carmelo Anthony. Um, Why you and, would want to pay tribute to him, I have no. Um. <laughs> this this guy had spent like a year of high school in Denver, like uh, I don't know how long ago, like five, eight years All right, ago. Denver <laughs>
0: Carmelo. Denver Carmelo is, is definitely <laughs> yeah. worth um, uh, naming yourself after. I take yeah.
1: it that. Anyway, I just, I just got to hang out with them for, you know, a few days uh, over the course of like a week or two and went to a hip hop show down there and got to sort of see them hanging out. But, yeah, it was before the real explosion right now when there was just kind of a, one or two raps. At that time, Fat Shady, because his song had been big, he could kind of like he was invited to like the open, you know, the when a real estate boss wants to open a new building somewhere in like, you know, third tier Sichuan, he'll like pay fat shady, uh, like a hundred thousand quai or something to come and and, you know, perform a song and open it. So I went to one of those shows and hung out with Mello. and, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they were kind of in typical hip hop way. They were talking a very big game or people like mellow. were talking a very big game. He's the one who had created the Uber rap, basically calling out like a uh, DD and local government officials for hating on Uber, which he loves. um, and that had briefly gone viral before it was uh, censored but yeah he was talking a big game he's like you know give me a couple of years and like we're going to be we're going to be going huge you know where it's going to be all like bling it's going to be cash money like fast money and all this kind of stuff and i was like uh maybe you know <laughs> like i don't know it doesn't really look like it right now kan ching kwang kan yeah kan but yeah, it's happened. You know, Higher Brothers Mellow. I'm not sure if he's like a full time member of Higher Brothers or if he's in associated with them in the past. He's on some tracks with them. Um but yeah, people like Higher Brothers have completely blown up and uh I'm sure some people are getting money making it rain. So Yeah, it's um
0: uh it's an exciting time. So the future um is in Xinjiang. I don't know if you've heard of any Xinjiang R&B artists or uh, rappers, but this one guy, Aka Jiang, um, uh, his name, his English name is like Aiken. Um, okay. I saw in concert recently, and I'll put a link up to, but he, I think, is the most impressive singer I've ever heard in Chinese and, and has a really cool style. He's, um, you know, wears these, like, suspenders and, like, I don't even know how to describe it, but, Mm -hmm. um, he's a a unique voice and like actually a world-class talent. I think he just got signed to some like Xiaomi deal. Um, (laughs) so if you get on the, uh, if you get on the, uh, Akajang, uh, bus now, then you're really, um, you can really brag to all your friends about how you were, um, the first to, to, to
1: ride the Uyghur, um. The Uyghur wave. So
2: yeah, they keep, a, had,
0: keep a look in, out
1: for him. In Urumqi, there was a hip-hop group that, I don't know if it's still around, I, I want to say it was called Seven City or something like that, that had its own sort of following and gained some like notoriety. And I, I was out in Urumqi in 2015, winter, yeah, uh, Chinese New Year 2015, I was like had an interview set up with them at the last minute. Like, ooh, like the political situation right now, it's just not it's not the time to be like talking to foreign journalists. They canceled on me, but I'm sure you know Xinjiang, just generally the far west has a lot of like swagger, a lot of the hip hop swagger that uh, other other parts of China might not necessarily uh, live up to. So I believe.
0: Cool. Um, so, Matt, this was uh, this was really fun today. If you could... Uh, we're going to close with a few uh, recommendations. Um, first, uh, favorite Chinese rapper?
1: So, I'll, I'll give... How about I'll give a track? Because this is the one track that, to me, stands above all. Uh, the song is called Piao Chu Chi Zou. Like, Piao is like a Piao, like a ticket... Sure to eat, she's is like to, to get going. I think I, I put it on my SoundCloud and I think I translated it as get after that paper because that's what PR is to them, um like, you know, and that to me is it's got uh, Fat Shady is the is has the first verse on it, um but then there are two more rappers. Uh, I'm forgetting the name of the third one, and the the second one is one of the Higher Brothers guy. What's his name? Uh, uh Masawe. So it's, yeah, Fat Shady Masawei and a third guy. And it's just like a really, like, fat, like, the kind of beat that you would want to have dropped in a club and just kind of get, like, hypnotic to. And to me, that it just, like, stands out head and shoulders above all the other Chinese rap tracks that I've heard. So um, I'm sure you can find it searching around YouTube or Yoku. I also have it on my on my SoundCloud because I embedded it in a story once. But, yeah, Fat Shady, Get After That Paper, a.k.a. PR Chuchi <laughs> Um,
0: maybe, maybe they'll have to take over for the new, um, (laughs) all right, it'll, it'll be your intro music. How about, about um, and lastly, uh, a book you would like to read about China in English on a topic that you do not think has been sufficiently covered.
1: Yeah, I would like a real deep dive on Xi Jinping's government governing philosophy i mean now now they have the official you know uh, it's been inducted into the constitution as the recently translated you know. into laos okay <laughs> yeah you know so the, i'm sure the party will define it in its own way but to me it's this blend of uh, uh authoritarianism plus anti-corruption clean governance um But with with zero tolerance for dissent, it's kind of I think of it as like 21st century, like techno, uh, techno legalism, like the times when I've had the greatest sort of I feel like I've seen a, a vision of what he's talking about is reading like old legalist texts and stuff like that, but an analysis of what he's really trying to get at in areas like legal reform and economic reform, and then an analysis of how this is going to interact with the changes that are going to sweep over the Chinese economy, techn- technological changes through artificial intelligence, um, you know, facial recognition, the ability to monitor society and also monitor the economy in a much more precise way than has been done in the past. I haven't really seen any book that has put all these pieces together and looked forward at what could be, I think we tend to fall into like, you know, kind of value judgments. Like, is he good? Is he bad? Like, do we like this? Do we not like this? But I'd like to see a analysis that just kind of takes it for what it is, takes it on its own terms and tries to project out where it's going to go from there. Yeah. I
0: mean, the, uh, the, the co-author, um classical Chinese scholar and, you know, young up and coming political reporter, I think could, <laughs> create a real uh a real bestseller yeah cool okay well uh Beth, this was great thank you so
1: much thanks, thanks for having me enjoyed it
3: Stress